All right, everybody. Well, everybody's real talkative because it's like the last day of school. Uh, we've got the, the last of our RCA for Catholics today, so let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you thanks for this entire summer. We thank you for the ways in which you've nourished us with your word and with your sacraments, and ask that you may send forth your Holy Spirit upon us today as we reflect upon the gift of marriage and ask that you may be with all married couples, with all of those preparing for marriage, all of those grieving the loss of a spouse. And we entrust this time into Mary's hands as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're at our last, our last session, the last of the sacraments. And one of the, one of the things about marriage that we'll, uh, we'll notice is marriage has a couple things that makes it different from all of the other seven sacraments. There's a couple things that make marriage unique amongst the, uh, amongst the sacraments. And so just as we're, um, we're kind of land in this plane, you know, we get to the, the end of sanctification basically, not the end, but um, of how, or at least our end for now, of how the Lord makes us holy and how the Lord makes particular people who he calls to the, to the sacrament of marriage, how he makes them saints. And so just to kind of rehash what we talked about last week about vocation, that vocations are the call from God, it's where we give our love, it's where the totality of our life goes, not just something we do, not just something we, we kind of a hobby or something we do from time to time, something we can stop, lack of permanence. So marriage is a vocation because it's where we give our love, it's permanent. Maybe just one, um, one clarification that somebody asked me a question uh, from last time. Uh, one of the things I mentioned, we talked about a little bit, was the, the, the diaconate and what is it that deacons are able to do. And I failed to mention about blessings. So deacons are given permission to do blessings of whatever the liturgical books give them permission to do. That sounds a bit convoluted, right? <laughs> but there are certain ones that it says, you know, then the priest blesses the object, right? So the blessing of a chalice, only, only a, a priest or bishop can do that. But at the end of, let's say, at the end of the liturgy of the hours, at morning or evening prayer, a deacon gives the blessing then. Or at the end of a, at the end of a wedding, if the deacon's doing the, the wedding, he'll give the blessing. So I, uh, I, met, I um, forgot to mention that, and somebody, somebody just followed up and asked about it. So, so is backpacks in that list of what they can do? For yeah, them? backpacks. Is that? I don't know. So there is a blessing. Are backpacks in the list of things that deacons can do? It's a question. And um, I don't know. There is a blessing of like all things. So I don't know if that's one that, you know, the deacons have permission to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to check the bless blessing of animals, too. I imagine, I think that is one that says, you know, the priest or the deacon. And there is one, uh, a lot of the, the blessings in the book of blessing, right, there's like a, there's a, pl a prayer um, that can be prayed that anybody can pray over something, just like you can pray for anybody. But then it says if, if the, you know, presider, the person leading is a priest or deacon, then do this part. So there, yeah, like anybody can do a lot of the book of blessings, some of it, the, 
is reserved for the, the priest, the deacon. So, point of clarification. So marriage, one of the things that makes marriage unique is that marriage, of course, is a sacrament, but it's not just a sacrament. Marriage is a universal phenomenon, right? So before Jesus showed up and gave us sacraments, Jewish people were getting married, and they were really, truly getting married. Even today, you know, two Buddhist people could get married, and we would say that's still a true marriage. It's a, not a sacramental marriage, but it is a true marriage. So marriage is this universal phenomenon. And, and even you go to places, you know, you go to um, places in the Himalayan mountains, right? And in Asia, people get married. Or you go to the jungles of, of, uh, of South America, people are getting, getting married. Or something similar where two people stay together uh, as husband and wife. So that's one of the unique things about marriage, right? Confession is not a universal phenomenon. It's a sacrament, primarily. And all the other sacraments are like that. They're specifically Christian. Marriage is, is not that. So as we look at marriage, we say that Jesus elevated marriage to a sacrament. So there's natural marriage, right, which anybody, you know, you can enter into. You can go to the courthouse if that's how your faith says you can. Um, or you can, and that could be a natural marriage. And then Jesus elevates it to a sacrament. Marriage also is also a public act. So marriage is never just like a private, a private thing. And even our, our society recognizes this because there's a reason why married couples get tax breaks. There's a reason why there should be some sort of benefits to being married. Because it's a public act. It's not just me and this person. Which, you know, when they... Um, I believe it was Obergefell and Hodges came out. That was the Supreme Court decision that permitted um, two people of the same sex to get married. There were some people that said, well, just, the state, you know, the, the government should just get out of marriage altogether and say, you guys do whatever you want and let's just forget the whole thing. And the reason that's not the right answer is because marriage actually benefits all of society. The whole world benefits from marriage. So that's why marriage is a public thing, right? Even in the church, it's a public thing. You have to have at least two witnesses there because it's a, it's a public thing. It's not just between these two people. Also, we say marriage is in a bit of a crisis. And I think all of us would probably know there's something. Something marriage isn't ideally lived as it's supposed to be, and maybe now more than, more than ever. The number of, you know, the, the kind of the going you know, knowledge is that about half of marriages that people enter into end in divorce. That's like only, only, like 40% of first marriages, and you know, it's like 70% of third marriages end in, end in divorce. So that's not good. But another one of the crisis, crises facing marriage that we don't, you know, often talk about is people just not getting married anymore. So there are more, there were more people getting married in the United States in 1980 than there are now. Our population is much, much bigger, but there's fewer marriages now than there was in 1980. So people just not getting married, and, and why that could be, who, who knows? Maybe people just live together instead and kind of wait, and if this doesn't work out, they'll move on. Um, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of fear with marriage. I, I, was, I remember one of my friends in high school, as long as I knew him, and we, 
started being friends in second or third grade, as long as I knew him, his parents were divorced. I remember in high school one time him talking about like, I'm afraid of getting married because of this experience of growing up. And, and so, you know, we're 33 years old now. I guess he's 32. And uh, he's, he's not married. He's been dating the same girl, wonderful lady, for a while. But, uh, you know, that, that fear sometimes, sometimes um, exists in the young. But there's good news about marriage. So the good news is that couples who pray together Couples who go to church every Sunday together, couples who practice natural family planning, their success rate is like through the roof. You know, we're talking like mid to upper 90s of couples who do all three of those things. Pray together every day, go to mass together, or church together, and to, uh, to practice natural family planning. Like those, those things just like throw the success rate way high, like upper 90s. So, so if we follow the, the point of that, if we follow God's plan, things seem to work out. That's why God gave us that plan. So um, that's the nice thing, is that we don't have to create marriage for ourselves and be like, oh, we got to figure this out. It's like, no, God has a plan for marriage, and that's what we're going to try to follow. So that's what we're going to talk about today. What's God's plan for marriage? Because you can approach marriage from all sorts of different things. Like, you could do it from a sociological thing and say, well, what, how, what are the statistics of marriage in the United States? You could do it from a psychological thing. Okay, you could have a couples therapist come in and present about marriage. You could um, do it from like a, uh, a cultural uh, just kind of survey where what's marriage like in Asia? What's marriage like in North America these days? You know, we're going to go revelation. What's God's plan for love and, and for marriage? And that's probably what you're here to hear about anyways, so... The, the first thing about, about marriage is fascinating as we look through the scriptures is this theme that God comes to marry his people. So we've got the prophet Hosea here. Hosea is one of the, the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, you know, normally when we think prophets, we think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, maybe Daniel. Hosea gets an interesting task from the Lord. So here at the, at the start and in Hosea chapter 3, he gets this um, instruction from God to go marry this woman, Gomer. And so Hosea goes to marry Gomer, and uh, he's like, I don't really want to marry Gomer. And it's not because her name is Gomer. <laughs> um, he, because, he says, uh, you know, she's a prostitute. And why do you want me to marry a prostitute, Lord? You know? And he says, so that you'll know how it feels. So you think about this. Hosea marries Gomer. She's unfaithful and goes around to all these different places, people. Um, God is in a relationship with his people who keep going to pagan idols, right? So the God's people are unfaithful, and he wants Hosea to feel what that's like, to have somebody you care about, you love about, go running to somebody else. And so that's Hosea's, like... God wants to marry his people, yet his people are going messing around, so to speak. So, so there's that, you know, this theme that God comes to marry his people. And then even here in the book of Isaiah, um, Do not fear, you shall not be put to shame, nor be discouraged, you shall not be disgraced. For the shame of your youth shall be forgotten, the reproach of your widowhood no longer remembered. For your husband is your maker. 
The Lord of hosts is his name. And then just kind of going on, the Lord calls you back like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, a wife married in youth and then cast off, says our God. In an, for a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with great tenderness, I will take you back. So this theme of like God calling, calling his unfaithful people back. And, you know, the, um, this gets into our, our language why we always use feminine pronouns for the church, why we call the church she or her or all of those feminine pronouns because us, the church, feminine, is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who's, who's the groom. And you see this in John chapter 3 uh, is when John the Baptist shows up on the scene and John the Baptist is, uh, is pointing out to Jesus Christ, saying, like, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, I'm the best man. Like, that word gets in there. So he's the, he, I'm the best man. The best man's the friend of the bridegroom. So he's the best man. Jesus is the, uh, the one coming to marry his people. So I guess John the Baptist is just there to make sure he gets to the wedding on time, right? <laughs> There's a whole lot of, yeah, some truth to that. Um, John chapter 14. I love this one because it is um, it's one of the most popular funeral readings. So that's, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I've told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself. So that where I am, you also may be. Doesn't sound too much like a wedding, maybe, or marriage. But think about Mary and Joseph's marriage. So we hear that Mary and Joseph are betrothed, but before they live together. So in the Jewish marriage custom at the time of Jesus, the groom, they would get betrothed, right? Basically is more than engaged. It's like this, we're getting married no matter what. There's no backing out at this point. So they get betrothed and then the groom would go back to his father's house and put on an addition, right? So he'd, he'd make a room, a place. And then when his dad's like, looks good for your new bride, he would go back and bring his wife to live in his father's house. Now, that might be a little awkward, you know, let's move into the parents' house, but that's how, you know, that's how this whole family situation was. So you think about, as Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I've prepared a place for you, my bride, and I will come back again and take you to myself. So it's this whole marriage marriage imagery that, um, that Jesus comes to, to bring his people. So he's marrying us. Um, yeah, Revelation, you know, that's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Ephesians, husband, love your wife just as Christ loved his church and poured himself out for his bride. And I, I should have put a picture of this because this, I always just find this fascinating. So, you know, in St. Peter's Basilica, right, the big church in Rome, if you're looking at the altar, right? Let's see, there's, here's the altar. I'm standing at the altar. Directly above the altar, there's like this big old canopy type thing that has four pillars, right? Four pillars, and then there's like kind of like a, it's all bronze and beautiful, and there's like a canopy on top. And the idea of that is it's supposed to look like the canopy on a medieval bed. You know, like a medieval bed would have this canopy over top of it. And the idea is, under the canopy of a bed, a husband and wife give themselves to each other out of love. Under the canopy, under this altar, is where Jesus Christ gives himself to us, his bride, out of love. So on the altar, Jesus Christ gives himself to us out of love. We receive that love just as under that canopy in a bedroom is where a husband and wife 
give themselves to each other in love. So it's a, like a, it's great imagery. It's beautiful. So, um, and even, you know, upstairs at, uh, here in IC, there's that little, um, there's that little circle directly above the altar. And the, you know, that is like a, a modern interpretation of this canopy that it, it dwells over. It's like, that's not just like somebody like, yeah, we need a circle here. That'd be kind of cool. Um, but that's actually the idea is that's supposed to be like a kind of a modern interpretation of, it's called a baldacchino. There's your, there's the word for the day. You got a picture? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, I thought that was where um, St. Peter underneath is where he's buried, correct? Yeah, so under, under that altar in St. Peter's is where St. Peter's buried. But there are baldacchinos in other churches. Okay. Yeah, so if you go, let's think the most local, Our Lady of the Rosary down in Dayton, which is like right next to Children's Hospital, has a beautiful baldacchino there. Um, yeah, Our Lady of the yeah. If you ever make it to Children's Hospital, just sneak, a, sneak aside to Our Lady of the Rosary. It's a beautiful place. It's one of the places that Father Kyle Schnipple's the pastor of also. All right. So God comes to marry his people. So that's kind of like, that actually makes marriage one of the unique, another reason that makes marriage a unique sacrament. Marriage is the shape of, of every sacrament. Marriage is about somebody giving themselves to another and somebody receiving, like them giving and receiving their love. Every single sacrament, that's the shape of it. In the Eucharist, Jesus gives himself to us and we receive his love. In the sacrament of reconciliation, we, we give our sins, we give the worst of us, and he receives that and he returns to us his mercy. So every sacrament is like imaged of marriage, this giving and receiving of love. So marriage is the shape of every single sacrament. It's one of the seven, but it's also kind of like the pattern that all seven follow. So this, you know, we've been hammering this definition of what a sacrament is. Instituted by Jesus Christ, there's an outward sign called an efficacious sign. Um, it gives grace and it's entrusted to the church. I'm just going to roll through all of these. So where do we have Jesus instituting marriage? Might be pretty straightforward. The, the first one's the wedding feast at Cana. So one of the, I think everybody here knows the story of the wedding feast at Cana. We don't have to, uh, we don't have to rehash that. But one of the things that, you know, we talk about Jesus' Jesus's presence at, at a wedding. Right? Jesus comes to this wedding and graces it with his presence. And that's, first of all, Jesus shows it's important enough for him. And he actually cares about this couple because their wedding is, about, their marriage is about ready to start with a bunch of shame, right? They, they run out of booze, like, right? You could imagine if you're at a wedding and they ran like very early, right? Before dinner started, they ran out of alcohol. That would be the talk of like, that's what everybody would say about that wedding. And every time you would have like your 30th anniversary, your 40th, <laughs> remember that time we were sober at your wedding? <laughs> remember that time we remembered your wedding? Uh, that would be the talk. And so Jesus cares enough about this couple to, to, to save them, to bless them with his presence. Um, and maybe in one of the uh, other places, maybe this is even, this is even more so 
um, revolutionary is this Matthew chapter 19. I'm sure everybody's heard this, but um, some of the Pharisees approached Jesus and tested him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, whatever? He said in reply, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. They said to him, Then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, and marries another, commits adultery. Pretty intense words from, from Jesus. And so just to like contextualize what our Lord, this whole situation. So they come and they say, hey, uh, are we allowed to divorce our wives? Is that still cool? And Jesus says, well, from the beginning, that's not the way it was supposed to be. Marriage had gotten rather out of hand in the Old Testament. So much so that Solomon, King Solomon, David's son, had 300 wives and 600 concubines. Like, and you think, yeah, that wasn't the plan. That was not the way that it was supposed to be. Because um, how, how does that work? I, I don't know how that works. But you think, like, okay, this isn't, this isn't how, it's, how it's supposed to be. And so what, look what Jesus says. He says, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And for this reason a man shall leave his father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus, in his answer to this, can we, can we just, you know, slip a, slip a bill of divorce and everything be okay? He doesn't just say, no, that's not cool anymore. He says, from the beginning, like he, he goes and looks at Adam and Eve. So basically, as the church has reflected on this, has come to the, the realization that what Jesus is doing in this gospel is he's hitting the reset button on marriage to say, Adam and Eve's relationship is the way marriage was always supposed to be. And that's what I'm restoring. So he restores marriage from its brokenness. Through his grace, through his redemption, through his salvation, he, he restores marriage to the original plan. And so if we want to look, right, so he says, in the beginning. He's going very back to Genesis. So if we want to look at God's plan for love, God's plan for marriage, we can go back to those first couple chapters of Genesis, see Adam and Eve, see God's plan from, from the beginning in their, um, their relationship. So, so Jesus, as Jesus institutes marriage, we say he's, he's basically restarting. He's basically hitting the reset button. Any questions? Institution of marriage by Jesus? Institution of marriage as a sacrament. Jesus doesn't begin marriage. Marriage existed before him. He elevates it to the level of a sacrament. All right, so the outward sign of marriage, right? Marriage has a ritual, just like every, every baptism, has, you know, every sacrament has this kind of sign, this ritual. And the essential part is what makes the sacrament. So those are always words accompanied with, with signs. So in a, um, 
And in baptism, you hear the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Boom. You know, take this all of you need of it. This is my body given up for you. Sacrament. For the sacrament of matrimony, I know what's the essential words that you hear, and boom, you know the couple is married. Okay, we got I pronounce you man and wife. Any other guesses? It's actually the vows that the couple takes. Yeah, so that actually makes it, this is one of the other things that makes marriage unique amongst all the sacraments. The person receiving the sacrament is also the one saying the words. So in confirmation, right, as you go up for confirmation, you don't say any words that make that confirmation happen. You simply receive it. But in marriage, you say, you know, we'll just use Joseph and Mary for all these examples. I, Joseph, take you, Mary, to be my husband. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, to love you and to honor you all my days. And then the, the opposite happens. You know, I, Mary, take you, Joseph, to be my husband, and, you know, and goes through the whole thing. So it's the, the vows the couple makes that make the marriage, which is interesting because in all the other sacraments, it's the priest, the deacon, the bishop that administers the sacrament, right? Baptism, I'm the one that says the words, the Eucharist, take the solve, you need it. But in marriage, it's the couple that's, we call it the minister of marriage, is the couple. They give the, the, um, the sacrament to each other. So that's fascinating and unique. Right. So, yeah, so the question is, do you need the priest there? You have to get married according to the Catholic way for Catholics to have a valid marriage. The bishop can give, um, well, actually the pope can give permission for somebody else other than a priest, a deacon, or bishop to witness a marriage. So, for example, there's a religious sister in um, Alaska that has permission to receive marriage vows. So basically we're just the chief witness on behalf of the church. Um, well, and here's a little, uh, and I might have said this last time, there's a, uh, in the Eastern Catholic Church, their understanding of marriage is this, what we just talked about, and the blessing of a priest. So actually in the Eastern Catholic Church, a deacon cannot witness marriages because they need the blessing of a priest. So, that's just, that's unique. So yeah, so if somebody says, Father Sean is marrying us, it's like, no, the two of you are marrying each other. Three people don't get married in the state of Ohio. That's a Utah thing. Um, it's a really bad joke. <laughs> but one I've used 50 times before. Um, so, yeah, so we witness marriage basically on behalf of the church. We're making sure, you know, this is Joseph, this is Mary, nobody's got a gun to anybody's head, you know, they're fully in, um, intending this sacrament. So that's the essential part of marriage, right? The, the exchange of vows. When the couple consents to marriage, they're married. But that, like any of the other sacraments, there's other things that, that come before that are, are part of the marriage ceremony. So right before the couple exchanges vows, they're, they're asked three questions. The first one is about freedom. Um, so Joseph and Mary, have you come here freely and wholeheartedly without coercion? 
which is really fascinating. The first thing we ask you, anybody coercing you to be here? Like, anybody forcing you to be here on your wedding day? And um, so you think about, like, okay, why is that? Why are we asking about freedom? And you think about all the ways you cannot be freely entering marriage. Like, maybe the obvious one's like an arranged marriage where somebody picks out your spouse and you're not really free. But then you think there's maybe like internal fears, like sometimes um, somebody is in such a bad home situation growing up that they would marry anybody they could to get out of that house, right? And so are you really freely entering marriage if you're just running from something else? Or another one, somebody's expect, you know, the bride's expecting a child. Well, we've got to get married because now we're having a child and that's, that's just what you do. Well, you're not freely entering marriage. Or um, the biological clock is ticking, and if we don't get married, we're not going to be able to have kids. So that, like, kind of the um, not freely entering marriage, there's, um, yeah. On a positive note, most of the time in the United States, when we're talking about freedom, we're talking about, like, the right to carry a gun, to say what you want, free speech, or, um, or to vote. But this freedom of marriage is basically, say, my future I give to somebody else. Like, I don't know. We don't know what our life's going to be. We don't know if we're going to be rich or poor. We don't know if we're going to get pregnant with kids on our honeymoon or if we are going to um, struggle to conceive. We don't know what's going to happen with jobs. Maybe somebody's mom's going to have to move in with, like, who knows what's going to happen. And I give you this blank check. Like, that is the freedom of marriage is to say, I believe that God has called me to stay with you for the rest of our lives. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. This kind of yes to freedom means to be able to give ourselves to somebody else. And so that's why this first question, you know, is, is really a beautiful one. Like, is this your vocation is basically what it's asking. And are you willing to give your life to somebody else, to each other? So then the, uh, the, next, the next question is... Um, Will you love and honor each other for as long as you both shall live? And everybody knows that the marriage is about love. Marriage is about honoring each other. But even to think about, you know, maybe for those of you that are married, to think about what that's meant over the years for you. Like you think about, compare the first time spouses said, I love you, and what that meant. And then at, you know, whatever the most re recent anniversary you celebrated, as you say, I love you, what that meant. And not to say like, oh, when you're young, you don't even know what love really is, but actually to say, look how our love has deepened. Look how our love has grown over the years. And actually just to, just to be able to look and, and marvel about how hopefully it's, it's grown over the years, but just, a, uh, you know, just maybe a, a little reflection to, to, yeah, what does it mean when we say we love each other? And how has that changed over the, over the years, over the decades? And then... Um, this, the third question is, are you willing to accept children lovingly from God and to bring them up according to the law of Christ in his church? Love this question because it says, are you willing to accept children? Like children are a gift to be received and accepted. You know, you can't demand when a child is, uh, is going to come. And, you know, this is, this, uh, today is not about sexual ethics and all, the, all of that, but we got to probably touch, touch on it just a little bit. So the, um, the marital act, let's just call it that. That's kind of a way moral theologians, the marital act, two ends of it, right? Two purposes. Unity, 
right? Brings a couple together in procreation. Babies and bonding, if you will. And so that's, so to keep those always present. And when one of those falls away, that's when we're like, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the marital act following its design. So unity and procreation, babies and bonding. And sometimes people pick one of them ex with excluding the other. So for example, in vitro fertilization is when you take a sperm, you take an egg, and you, you fertilize the egg with the sperm, and then implant it in the uterus. Um, so that basically means we're taking the children, but we're getting rid of any of the bonding. Right? Rather than children coming from a loving act of their parents, comes from the skill of a laboratory technician. There's a whole lot of other stuff that happens with in vitro fertilization that can kind of like leave you head scratching. And of course, like infertility is a terrible thing that people really struggle with. But um, what often happens is, you know, even the science today is not 100% foolproof. So they'll take, you know, multiple, maybe like a dozen fertilized or eggs, fertilize all of them, see which ones are the most viable, implant sometimes two or three. In the, in the woman and see what sticks, basically. So a lot of times people get pregnant with twins. Sometimes that's where selective abortions come in of saying, oh, we got triplets, three of these took. Uh, and these are all children, right? And then they've got these other ones, the, the less strong ones maybe, and they get, um, they get frozen, for, sometimes for future use, sometimes for not. And what do you do with all of those? And you want to get a moral theologian scratching their head, what do you do with those fertilized um, children, really. So in vitro fertilization presents a whole lot of hairy situations. And even to talk to some, like, um, one of my siblings' friends had this whole conundrum, because after they went through in vitro fertilization, had twins through that. And then, like, I think it was a year after, I was like, yeah, a year after that, they had another child, naturally. And then they had another child after that. And then they're like, we've got four children that we had in like three and a half years. What do we do with all of these frozen embryos, these children? Like, what, what do we actually do with all of that? Um, and that's a, that's a question and a half right there. All right, so don't remove the bonding from the babies. Don't remove the babies from the bonding. And that's where contraception comes in, is where we're just choosing the unity without the, uh, without the procreation. And that comes in so many shapes and sizes, some temporary, some permanent, some somewhere in between. And so just that, um, that reality there. Yeah. Babies and bonding. So, at, so we asked this question about children. Then there is the blessing and exchange of rings. And then even to talk about, you know, the marital act is the expression of married love. We're, we talk, Jesus is the word that becomes flesh and dwells among us. Marriage and intimacy is the words of your wedding vows becoming flesh. I like every marital act in some ways is a renewing of, of wedding vows. Some makes it, it's beautiful, right? It's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing given by God, so. Question the outward sign of marriage, anything ethically? You're getting a whole bunch of hairy particulars. Okay, so the grace of marriage. 
the first grace of marriage that the catechism talks about is an indissoluble bond is established between the individuals. I underlined indissoluble because it's not like a word we use all the time. Soluble, of course, if something is water-soluble, it's able to be dissolved in water. And so what exists between a married couple is this indissoluble bond. And Jesus talks about this in the... Um, in the this um, Matthew 19 he says what God has joined together no human being must separate so because God has joined this nobody nobody can separate so that's the first thing so there's this bond that exists between two people one of the um, one of the beautiful things is that when you know this bond exists it gives married couples, I think, a whole lot of confidence. You say, we can have like that difficult conversation because they're not going anywhere. Or we can be mad at each other, but we know that we're not going anywhere. Or we can kind of take this, we can um, have a bad day at work and come back home because we know that our spouse is going to be there. So there's uh, all sorts of like beautiful things that just come from the knowledge that Jesus has sealed a bond between, between the couple. So we think about like the grace of, of marriage. So remember like graces are those helps that God gives his people. So like just remember like the Eucharist is nourishment for our spiritual lives. Like that's the gift that God gives us. So what is particularly the grace of marriage? Well first, the grace is ordered to perfect their love, strengthen their unity, and help one another to attain holiness. So all the gifts, all of the graces that God gives married couples are for these three purposes. To perfect their love, right? For love to get better. For the love that they have for each other to get even better. <laughs> to strengthen unity. So this kind of like, un this, the example that comes to mind is like, as couples age, every now and then they begin to almost be like each other. Like you're like, they kind of have the same sense of humor, the same mannerisms, the same habits. It's like that's the strength of unity that comes over the course of, you know, decades of marriage, right? Living it with Christ, living it open. It, he strengthens their unity so much so that they're very similar people. And actually, you can, like, begin to anticipate each other. You know what each other's thinking. And it's to attain holiness. That's ultimately the goal. So then the next um, chapter in the catechism, our paragraph, spells this out. So it gives the couple strength to take, take up crosses, not us crosses, strength to take up crosses, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be subject to one another, to live with a supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. So that's what marriage, that's the grace of marriage, to do all of these things, to bear one another's burdens. To think about like a great spouse is like Simon the Cyrenian that helps Jesus carry his cross, that helps Jesus to, to bear his burdens, to forgive one another. Like forgiveness isn't easy, especially when it's your spouse and it's the person that's supposed to love you the best and they hurt, they hurt you. And so to have the grace of God to say, I forgive you. And then, you know, the time to say, hey, would you forgive me because I, I screwed up. To bear one another's burdens, kind of similar to strength to carry across. To be subject to one another, to actually 
have, have the grace and the humility to say, okay, this is, this is your desire. It's not mine, but I'll, I'll submit to what you're, what you're asking. Even if something as simple as like, I don't like that for dinner, but you like it, we'll have it tonight. Or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And to love each other with a supernatural, a tender, and a fruitful love. It's beautiful. Who knew the catechisms could be so poetic, right? Any questions about the, the grace of marriage? So remember, anybody have any questions? I'll give you time to ask. One of the, um, so grace you think about like that is God's gifts towards people. And um, married couples are engaged couples. They fill out a gift registry, right? They fill out a registry of all of these gifts they're hoping to get on their wedding day, right? Your toaster, your blender, your linens, towels, whatever. I like to encourage them to think about, well, if you had to ask for a wedding registry from God, for his grace, for your wedding day, what would you ask for? And there's oftentimes you get things like patience, the ability to forgive, the strength to help to persevere in difficult times. So to just think about that, like, well, if you had to fill out a registry for your 25th, for your 50th, whatever it is, what, what would you ask for God, ask of God for, for your marriage? What would that registry look like? And that can't be like ending of your spouse's bad habits, right? Like, <laughs> I'm to stop burping so much. <laughs> All right. And uh, so right after the part about the grace of marriage and the catechism, the catechism talks about the goods of marriage. And that goes back to St. Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine, you know, is a bishop in northern Africa. He dies in 430. So this is a really early part of the early church. And there's this thing, this idea, this movement going on in the church, which comes up all the time in different forms. The spirit good, the flesh bad, right? The, the soul good, the body bad. So as they're talking about all this, the flesh bad, the body bad, marriage gets lumped into that, right? Because marriage has to do with physicality. So this is all bad. So you shouldn't do that. And Augustine, as a good bishop and possibly the greatest theologian that's ever existed in the church, says, hold on, that's not right. Marriage is a good. And they say, well, what do you mean? Okay, here's three goods of marriage that St. Augustine identifies. First would be the unity and indissolubility. So their human communion, and this is the catechism, is confirmed, purified, and completed by communion in Jesus Christ. So this... Um, Think about, like, this is the difference that a sacramental marriage, the difference between a sacramental marriage and a natural marriage. That in a sacramental marriage, the love gets joined to the love of Jesus Christ's love for his church. The love of the couple gets drawn up into God's love for his people. And so that communion that exists between the couple is strengthened by the, the communion they have, the unity they have in Christ. So it's the unity and indissolubility of marriage is, yeah, perfected by Jesus. And then Augustine, the second good he talks about is fidelity, imitating God's fidelity. Every time, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, God is this great image of fidelity. And fidelity just being, I love you no matter what, and I'm always well happy to have you back. 
because you look at all of the infidelity that exists throughout the Old Testament, whether it's the people start complaining when there's no, there's no uh, bread or there's no meat and God, you know, being there for their needs or they're going out to worship all these pagan gods like Gomer's in Hosea's time. And God's just simply, I love you no matter what. I love you no matter what. And so married couples imitate God's fidelity and they show the world God's fidelity to see like, okay, if a married couple's going through a difficult time and they've got to struggle to remain faithful, that's a great imitate. That's a great kind of like analogy for our own relationship with God that sometimes we're struggling to remain faithful with God. And in my own, my own musings, this is, this is Father Sean's musings, I wonder if there is a correlation between the rise of divorce in our own day and age and the rise of atheism. That is, people don't see married couples sticking it out and having this ever-present fidelity that, that lessens their image of God's fidelity. You know, that again is Father Sean's musings. And you could say that's crazy and you might be right. And then the, uh, the third good that Augustine recognizes is life. Um, the procreation of children. And I think that kind of goes without saying that one of the great things that, that married couples give the world is a future. Is that there's more um, human beings out there. And even married couples, one of the great things they give is well-formed people. Um, and gosh, you want to talk about a struggle raising children, but it's one of the beautiful things that good marriages beget good children. And so that's one of the great gifts that uh, marriage gives, gives, the, uh, gives the whole world. And then in this section, the catechism talks about the domestic church. But know what's a domestic beer? When we say domestic beer, what are we talking about? Home, yeah. So domestic beer is normally one that's in the, in the United States. So domus is the Latin word for home. So domestic beer, home beer. Domestic church, home church. And the, the basic idea is that a, a family is a little microcosm of the church. And the things that you first learn are the things that the church wants to teach people, you first learn and you best learn at home. The church wants to teach people how to pray. You first learn that and you best learn that by your parents teaching you how to pray. The church, God bless you, the church tries to teach people how to forgive each other. You first learn that and best learn that by having siblings that annoy the crap out of you and you have to forgive them. How to be forgiven. You first learn that and best learn that at home when you say, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry I didn't do what I was asked to do. How to serve the poor. You first learn that and best learn that by watching your parents care for the poor. You know, all these things. So whatever the church tries to teach people, you first learn that and you best learn that at home. So that's why the, the churches are, are the, the family, call is the, the domestic church. Questions? Goods of marriage? That's St. Augustine with his heart on fire. Yeah. Yeah. St. Augustine's famous for his confessions, like his autobiography. And in the opening chapter, he's got some, some uh, famous lines. One of them is, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. And so that's kind of that image of his heart aflame. So then marriage is entrusted to the church. So the church has gained a lot of wisdom about marriage and what and 
you know, what makes a good marriage, what makes a bad marriage over the years, it build up over the centuries. Anybody know what movie this is a picture from? Huh? Do what? No? Did you say Romeo and Juliet? It's not Romeo and Juliet. The, the guy right here is played by Mel Gibson. It's Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. So there's a scene at the start of Braveheart where Mel Gibson, there's, there's some bad things happening in William Wallace's day and age. And that's the character that Mel Gibson's playing um, regarding to marriage. So he and his beloved go get married in secret. So you got him get married in secret. And um, then you come back, it's like, oh, we're married. And the issue with that, I don't know if that's like the scene. I guess I don't know in the time of William Wallace, one, if this is actually a historical fact or uh, what the church's rules were at the time. But in our own day and age, you must have two witnesses at a wedding. Normally, we just write them down as the best man and the, the maid of, or matron of honor. So if somebody did that now, it would be an invalid marriage, right? If I had this couple, you know, Romeo and Juliet style, they said, our parents don't want us to get married, Father. Marry us under the cover of darkness with nobody there. I'd be like, well, at least invite two other people. We can do this. So um, I don't recommend that at all, but. <laughs> so that's one of the, like, one of the things the church has, uh, has gained in wisdom over time. Is it essential to marriage? No, because you can get dispensed from it. Right? You can get permission not to go through that. Right? You can't get, you can even actually, you know, one of the things in marriage, you can get married by proxy. So let's say hypothetically, you know, Joseph and Mary are scheduled to get married <clears throat> on, um, you know, whatever day, some Saturday. And on Wednesday, Joseph tests positive for the COVID. Right? And he can't get, you know, can't get married or anything. Or, you know, it could be something worse, right? It could be like he gets hit by a bus and he's um, in a hospital, right? Joseph can delegate somebody as a proxy to, to basically exchange vows on his behalf. Like, wouldn't that be an interesting thing, right? Yeah. Um, let's see. There are some other interesting things. A guy goes to the service. Yeah, a guy goes to a service. That could be. Yeah, yeah. Overseas. Yeah. Now, um, I know you can do that in the church. I don't know what the civil law is about that. So, for example, when somebody gets married here, that's both a, a church thing and it's also a civil thing. So I'm a licensed minister in the state of Ohio, but the state of Ohio says I can only, I can only. Um, witness marriages according to the Roman Catholic Church. So, um, yeah, so I can't, just because I'm a, a, uh, a licensed minister, I can't go ev everywhere. My permission, just according to the Roman Catholic Church. That's all I would do either. So, yeah. So, um, you can get permission to not get married according to the, um, according to the civil government also. So that's actually, you gotta, so, and that actually, in the Cold War, so behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets put a lot of like really terrible and wouldn't let people get married, and there was you know the hoops you had to jump through to get married. So the bishops, a lot of the bishops in Eastern Europe at that time, gave their priests blanket permission to to witness marriages without doing anything civil, 
because the Soviets were just so unjust in letting people get married. So you could still get married sacramentally, but the state actually didn't recognize it. That's fascinating. The age of marriage, right? The church can set that. That's not a, uh, that's not a, um, it's not like a divine law. 16 for men, 14 for women. Just another sign that women mature faster than men. But I think brain science actually says that too. Like the, the male brain isn't fully developed until like a couple days after they die. <laughs> Never. Never. That's not true. Um, yes, it is. Wow. Yeah, 16 and 14 is a little young. But, you know, there's days and ages and places where that. But I think the bishop, I think this is right, so don't quote me on that. I believe bishops' conferences can uh, raise that minimum age if they want. Maybe it's particular bishops can. Um, so, let's see. Um, oh, also... The, um, the consanguinity. Anybody know what that is? Marrying people with the same blood as you. Oh, so there you go. There you go. First, cousins can't get First cousins in the church. Can they get married? Yes, yeah. no? No. Yes. Maybe. If they're past the childbearing age. That's the question. That's the answer. So in, uh, in, in ordinary circumstances, the first cousins is the furthest like distance that cannot get married. So you can't marry your first, your first cousins. I don't think this is true in the state of Ohio, but I am certain in the state of Indiana, you can marry your first cousin after the age of, I think, 65. It might be 70. And the church, if the state gives permission for that, the church will grant a dispensation for... Um, for that. Crazy. I, so I had one of my friends was ordained and he was a newly ordained priest and this guy comes to him and he says, you know, we're getting married. I'd like to get married. And he sits down for the first, the first time with the couple and, you know, you ask one of those questions that you just generally ask, how the two of you meet? Oh, we're first cousins. What? <laughs> and so he got like all like, I don't know if you could do, you know, like you're just like fresh out of the seminar, just like stammering. Nobody prepares you to marry first cousins. Um, and uh, so then, you know, I had to do the research and called the, the diocese in Indiana. Like, yeah, we generally grant a dispensation if, you know, they're over, if the state does. So, yeah, that, that is what it is. I, that's probably all we say about that. So we said it used to be third cousins. I don't know. I know when I learned it. My mom used to think uh, you couldn't marry your second cousin. So we had that whole discussion. And she was a bit shocked to see that you could marry your second cousin. The field just got bigger, people. <laughs> uh, Celibacy is the answer. <laughs> oh, buddy. All right. Declaration of nullity. So sometimes called an annulment, right? And so what's 
you know, these just word games. Not really. So an annulment seems to, it insinuates that we're making something null, right? An annulment is like we're nullifying something. A declaration of nullity is more passive. It's declaring that something is null. And that's always from, from the very beginning. And we're just going to go back to Jesus' words in uh, the Gospel of Matthew again. Sorry, I should have kept my bookmark in there. All right, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another, commits adultery. Um, Jesus gives that little phrase, unless the marriage is unlawful. So a declaration of nullity is a recognition at the moment of consent that something was missing to make that marriage take. So it's declaring the marriage has always been null. It's not making something, right? So it's not a Catholic divorce, but you actually have to go back to the time of consent and say, is there something that made this marriage not happen? One of those kind of like straightforward things would be um, like the church recognizes um, Baptists, if a Baptist person marries a Lutheran, that's a real marriage, right? If you know, all, every marriage is a real marriage. It's not like you have to get married Catholic. So let's say a Catholic person marries a Baptist person, but they get married outside the church. They get married, you know, in a park. So that would say at the moment of consent, something was lacking, namely the Catholic person following the Catholic rite of marriage that makes that marriage null. So that could be one of those things. You think about all the other possibilities, right? So we were talking about that example. The somebody's leaving a terrible family situation and would marry the first person they would ever, that ever proposed, to, you know, that ever showed any interest, right? That's at the moment of consent. They didn't have really the freedom. They didn't, you know, they're basically running from a past rather than entering into marriage. There's all sorts of impediments, right? So if somebody lies about their age, you know, the bride comes up and she says, I'm 14 and a half and she's really 13 and a half. That's a reason for a declaration of nullity and a whole lot of other things. Um, so, so it's basically Jesus gives this little teaching about unless the marriage is unlawful, we've got to kind of wrap our heads around what is happening. So it's the church declaring that something's null, not um, changing the marriage, right? So it's not a, a di Catholic divorce. It's, uh, it's different. And there's all sorts of things you can go through. One of my favorite, favorite, um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. I say favorite, but maybe you'll see what I mean. Um, all sorts of reasons in the Code of Canon Law about reasons for a declaration of nullity. One of them is it says that if a man has kidnapped a woman to gain her consent in marriage, the marriage is null unless the woman has been released and freely chooses to marry her captive, her captor on her own accord, which raises so many questions, right? Like, how many times did this happen before they're like, you know, we got to put something in writing about this, right? We got we to gotta get something down about this. That's one thing. Um, who decided, let's put this little phrase that they could actually get married if she gets released and chooses marriage on their own accord? Like, why did that little phrase sneak in there? So, and then the other one is, 
Why does that say anything about the woman kidnapping the man? Seems a little one-sided, but anyways. So there's other reasons, of course, you know, probably um, more specific to our own day and age, and we don't have to go through all of those, but any questions? Declaration of nullity? People probably have story time. Um, somebody asked last, last night, um, well, you know, if you, you've got to submit kind of your testimony as to why your marriage should de be declared null, why don't you just lie, right? To say, like, because I could, I could write up, like, the perfect thing. It's like, this would be, a, this would be an open and shut case, right? You say, I, you know, um, yeah. The thing is, for ones that aren't just documents, like I was Catholic, got married outside the church, if it's stuff that you actually have to like investigate, you have to have witnesses corroborate what you're saying. So you have to have somebody say, let's say, so one of the goods of marriage is fidelity. So you can get, so there's a grounds for a declaration of nullity if you can show that somebody never intended to be faithful. So for example, somebody was cheating on their spouse be, before they got married and once their marriage began, right? They never actually intended to be faithful. And so if you're going to prove that, you have to actually have somebody testify that that was the case. So let's say it was the guy that was being unfaithful in all that times, right? Could take the, the, the woman could say that in her own testimony. The guy will be given an opportunity, and if he admits it, yeah, I never intended to be faithful to my wife from the very beginning. It's like, all right, there we go. Sometimes people aren't that cooperative. And you have to, like, who was his best friend? Like, who would actually know him? Does he have a brother that actually cares enough to be honest? You know who's, if you can, so helping people with the witnesses is always one of those parts of a declaration of nullity. Hairdressers. People spill their guts to their hairdresser, and so they get, they get a, they get a uh, earful sometimes. Um, yeah, barbers, too. Yeah, you just co-workers, you know, part of the declaration of nullity is just helping people figure out who will be a good witness. You can have a professional witness. If you go to a counselor, you can have them um, sign a waiver that they can, they can be part of this process. So. Who does that research? Who does? Who's the one looking into the yeah. witnesses? So, uh, so kind of the process is somebody will, you know, somebody will call, say, I need a declaration of nullity. And so somebody who's trained will help them. It's either one of the priests, one of the deacons, there are other people that are, that are trained to do it. And you sit down with them and say, what's the story? And the um, archdiocese has a number of questions um, that kind of helps kind of get that, get, that, um, get that going. Like, what is, what's the story? Tell me the story. And, uh, and you kind of, like, as, as you're sitting and you're listening to somebody, kind of like you're piecing, piecing things together to say, okay, like, just said that, like, tell me more about that, and, you know, and then say, okay, who would have known that, right? Who would be a good witness? Who's willing to do that? Um, a lot of times, unfortunately, people, are, they're like, they ask somebody to be a witness, and they're like, I'm not doing that Catholic nonsense. That's garbage. So people aren't very helpful. Um, yeah, so, so the person who's helping and the person who's applying for the Declaration of Nullity, you kind of brainstorm that together. Correct. We submit the names to the diocese, and the diocese sends stuff to to everybody to be a uh, to be a witness. So, 
Does it cost a lot of money for an annulment? I've heard different stories. Mm, great question. Every time they have another question, it costs another. Yeah. So is it, is, does it cost a lot of money for the declaration of nullity? When I was first ordained, for like a, a formal case of a declaration of nullity, it was $350. Archbishop Schnur is a savvy financial man, and he asked the tribunal to say, estimate about what the actual cost is for each declaration of nullity. Your man hours, your postage, the paper, everything. And they came back with, it was like $1,800. And, uh, and he said, you know what? $300 in the midst of $1,800, it's not worth it. It's too much of a, uh, it's too, it, and it's not good, just like press, it's free. So he said, like, we're barely even covering anything anyways. So there are certain cases that have to go to Rome. If you go to Rome, Rome charges the diocese, so then the person has to pay for that. But in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, it's free. Yeah. Yeah. And by free, that means the good people of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati pay for it, right? Somebody, somebody does. So. Yeah, are, are there many that aren't granted? Um, it seems like most go through. I, I have had um, s some, one, maybe two, that they, you know, you submit all the paperwork and they're like, I don't know if there's enough here. You can, you can, so we paused it to say like, okay, rather than getting a no and gonna have to like restart, let's just pause and maybe some other things will come up. One of them was still paused. I've had another one that came back and said no, um, but they, and that was not a fun conversation to have. Um, and, um, But then it actually opened up kind of more in the person's life and actually allowed them to have greater healing. And then actually it brought up stuff that like, I was like, did I not ask that question? Um, and then it came up and then we applied again and actually it was, it was granted. Um, so not a lot. I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of them do. Which you gotta, so that, that raises the question, does that mean that many marriages are in dire straits, or does that mean we're getting a little loosey-goosey with the words of Jesus Christ? Luckily, that's not my problem, that's not your problem. So don't have to figure that one out. There is somebody appointed at the tribunal who's the defender of the bond. So their role in all of these cases is to defend the bond of marriage. So it's kind of like a, somebody else kind of is on behalf of the couple, or the person who's applying, and the other person is trying to defend the bond of marriage. Yeah. So then after that, do they have to get a civil divorce too, or what happens? You actually have to have a civil divorce first, because you can only apply for a declaration of nullity if there's no hope of restoration. And the sign that there's no hope of restoration is a civil divorce. So, yeah. Question, Cindy. Are all archdioceses, do they have the same way they do it? Or can an archdiocese do different ways and then the bad cases are the really, um, yeah, go, go to the Pope? I mean, or is each archdiocese allowed to figure out their rules? 
So the, uh, the question is like differences between dioceses. And the process is, like the paperwork can be different, but the process is similar. So there has to be a judge that has a degree in canon law, the law of the church, to adjudicate. There has to be a defender of the bond. There, you know, um, you have to be trained to be the procurator. So that's like me. I'm like somebody's lawyer, basically. Um, so the procurator. So all that has to be the, um, in there. Um, one of the things that actually happened recently was because we always wanted to believe that the marriage was valid, every granting of a declaration of nullity was automatically appealed. So it would go, so all of the cases that were granted a declaration of nullity in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati were then sent to the Archdiocese of Washington, who was our automatic appeal, to, to just make sure that it was actually a declaration of nullity. That actually, in... I don't know, in the last 10 years, it said there's no, there's no automatic appeal. Um, but you can appeal. Like, so say somebody gets a no decision, you can appeal that. And so the Archdiocese of Cincinnati receives all the appeals from the Diocese of Cleveland. So all the, if somebody appeals in Cleveland, it comes to us. If somebody in us appeals, it goes to Washington, D.C. Um, so that's interesting. You can also appeal to the Pope. So that goes to a, a, a judge at the Roman Rota, it's called. So basically things, the paperwork can be different, right? Like different questions you ask, but the process is the same. You have to have witnesses. So that's the universal law of the church. Yeah. Um, good question. Any other questions? Has anybody ever asked to be a witness? Maybe you don't want to answer. Somebody has? Okay, people have. Yeah. I've never been asked to be a witness. I've been on the other side. I can't do both, right? So um, you can't be like the witness and the person because then you get too much insider information that, you know, that's not really honest. I do, I do know a, uh, a priest whose sibling was going through a declaration of nullity and he started to help her with that and then realized actually I'd be a better witness than the one to actually help her. So he sent, he asked another priest to help her, and then he said, just name me as a witness because this thing was a, this thing was a hot mess from the beginning, and I know that, so. Okay, declaration of nullity from that to same-sex attraction. So if we're gonna talk about, if we're gonna talk about marriage, we'll probably talk about this. The catechism has three paragraphs about same-sex attraction that is just Beautiful, like absolutely beautiful. At least that's, that's my opinion. Um, and it talks about disordered actions. And so, and that's, our actions are ordered to a certain thing. So, right, um, our, let's say, you, if you eat something that's not really good food, let's even just say you eat cardboard, right? That's a disordered use of your digestive tract, right? That's not the way your digestive tract was not designed to process cardboard. Although we ate some peanut butter growing up uh, that was so cheap that might have had bits of cardboard in it, but that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> you even get that peanut butter in the tub, like the half pound tub? Okay, so these are all, here are all of the parts of the sacred scriptures that explicitly mention um, same-sex actions. And so we're going to distinguish between actions 
and desires. So desires come and go and they can be disordered, right? Somebody can have a disordered desire for alcohol, a disordered desire for fame, a disordered desire for power, a disordered desire for sex in any, any way, shape, or form. And so anything that goes outside of intimacy between a married couple is disordered. So that goes, you know, like this part of the catechism is right. All the things around that are things like pornography, are things like um, fornication. So any act outside, outside of marriage. And so it, it just tries to, to situate that there. So being attracted to the same sex is, um, is not sinful in and of itself. It's the actions upon that. Just like being um, addicted to gambling is not in and of itself sinful. It's the living that out, right? Of, of wasting your family's money on, on that. So, so that's just a little distinction, right? It's not sinful to have the attraction. It's sinful to act upon it. Because it go, it's outside of how God created our order. So a couple things to help. Maybe one of the most beautiful things is in the 90s, I think, the Courage Apostolate was founded. And it's basically for those who are struggling, who actually want to struggle, right, with um, this same-sex attraction to live, to live with friendship, to live in chastity. So it's kind of like a support group, and they do a lot of beautiful work. There's two groups in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Um, and then there's been like a sister organization that's founded called Encourage. And so that's for parents. Parents who have children that um, are, even, are either living in you know, a same-sex um, relationship or they're battling it or, or whatever it may be. So you know, parents support group to say, you know, what, ha what do you do when your son asks if he can bring his boyfriend for Thanksgiving dinner? Right? Like, how do you handle that? And so Encourage is a great group. If you know people, um, it's, it's, a, it's a really helpful group. So again, we could go a lot about this topic, but we're talking about marriage, so we're just kind of talking about outside of the Christ plan for love and marriage. I encourage you to read the catechism, though. Questions about that? Or anything else marriage-related? What is the convocation blessing? I've heard that used. Convocation blessing. Yeah. Convocation. Convalidation. 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 All right, so con. So what's a convalidation? So con is <clears throat> like the word for with, right? Um, um, so with validity. So somebody who's Catholic gets married outside the church. They realize like that's not a great idea. Then we would convalidate their marriage. Basically, they would get married sacramentally. So that would be you know somebody gets married outside the church at a park or whatever, and then you kind of would do a sacramental marriage for them. Yeah, and that happens in all. God bless you. Happens in all different. Um, ways, shapes, and sizes had ones that were actually, I know of one I don't think I had it, but there was at one point there was a um, or sometimes there's a convalidation that nobody knows that the couple is actually civilly married right, like sometimes that happens they get civilly married, somehow nobody knows and then it just looks like a regular wedding ceremony, and then sometimes the couple's been married for 40 years she's like, ah, we should have gotten married in the church and so I've had that one time where it was just the couple, two witnesses, myself, and the church. They have a valid marriage now. So 
Yeah. So adding validity to a natural marriage. So that would be for somebody who had to get married in the church. So for example, if a Baptist couple gets married, we believe their marriage is valid as long as they follow the Baptist rules. So let's say that couple then comes into the church, the Catholic church, they wouldn't have to have their marriage convalidated. It's already, um, it's already a valid marriage. Does that make sense? Would a Baptist marriage be sacramental? Yes, as long as they're both baptized. Even if, even if the Baptists said we don't believe marriage to be a sacrament, if, even if they don't believe marriage to be a sacrament, we would say when the baptized exchange vows to be married, it's a sacramental marriage. Yeah. Any other questions? These are all great. If, let's say, um, if a, uh, a baptized Catholic wants to marry somebody who's unbaptized, they can get married in the church. There's a separate ritual in the book for that, but it would be a non-sacramental marriage, right? It would be a, because you have to be baptized for a sacrament to happen. So a Catholic can get validly married in the Catholic church non-sacramentally, right? So if you, you're marrying an atheist, you're marrying a Buddhist, you're marrying a Muslim, um, like that can be, you can have a, a valid natural marriage. And then let's say years later, that person's like, you know what, I want to become Catholic. The moment they're baptized, your marriage becomes a sacrament. So that's, that's fun. So I, I've given somebody four sacraments in one day because they were unbaptized, so we baptized them at Mass. And the moment they were baptized, their marriage became, val became a sacrament. And then they were confirmed shortly after that, and then they received the first Holy Eucharist for the first time. Let's talk about a fire hose of grace in one day. Man, brace yourself. So if you were a Catholic and married a Methodist who was baptized in his church, is that a sacrament? As long as you get married according to the Catholic Church, right? So if you get married, you get married here, then yeah. yes. Yep. You have to get it annulled if it's not a sacrament. Ah, so so if it's not a sacrament, can you get it declared null? Oh, let me see if I can find something in the Bible real quick. So the the answer is most the time, and I know that sounds like a but Saint Paul gives this weird little permission that I've never. Um, Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, it, yeah like you're not going to need to know this for anything, your entrance into heaven. So it's called a Pauline privilege. And St. Paul gives permission that if somebody is in, like if there's a believer, he basically says a believer married to an a non-believer, and then if their faith is becoming a point of contention, they, the believer can marry somebody else who's baptized I believe. Now I don't. Oh, there, I don't know all the details because I've never had to do it. Um, but there is something where, like, he gives permission for a marriage to be dissolved if that's the reason. So I have to, or it might be if they're both unbelievers and the one wants to become Catholic, they can get permission 
to, lead, to dissolve that natural marriage. Yeah, that's it. Dissolve the natural marriage when somebody gets baptized. Uh, yeah. The answer to your question is most of the time. And if you want to Google or Wikipedia Pauline privilege to get the, uh, the nitty gritty. There's also another privilege called the favor, favor of the faith that only the Pope can grant. And I, I'd get too hairy. It, it has a scriptural origin also. But it's like they say these things in scripture and we're like, okay, I guess we have to figure out how this applies. So, yeah. Great questions. Stumpers. The others? All right, well, this is the end. It's been fun. Thanks for coming time and time and time again. I've had a blast and learned a lot. So they say the best way to learn something is to teach it. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on this journey. And uh, Thank you. you're welcome. Thanks. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you thanks for everything that you do for us. We ask that you may help all married couples to purify their love so that they may live as an image of Jesus' love for the church. We pray for all of those who are preparing for marriage and all those who are married here. And we entrust this into your fatherly care as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.